Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing show. This week we're tackling the interesting and somewhat bizarre subject of zombie companies. What are they? Why are they important to be aware of their status? And what are the long-term ramifications both here in Australia and over in the US? Plenty to take out of this, lots to learn. See you in the broadcast. Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing show with me, your host Andrew Baxter, and as always, my faithful companion and outsider, Mr. Mitchell Orange. As well as I'm feeling dressed, Mr. B, we're going to unfortunately be talking about a topic not so beautiful, a little bit more grim, in fact, and that is a topic of zombie companies, the walking dead, the companies that are trading insolvent. That is a terrible segue, but that's what we'll have to work with today. <laughs> zombie companies, indeed, and something of a buzzword. Um, you know, we can look on this uh, both here in Australia, and I think we'll probably end up looking more at the US in regards to sure. this. So, um, what is a zombie company? Let's kick it off. Definition time. I think zombie company is effectively a business that can't exist on its own cash flow and has gone to uh, a form of finance and support uh, in order to keep the wheels turning. Uh, if we were to talk about Australia, uh, JobKeeper, uh, much as it's been touted as being this tremendous success at keeping you know a couple of hundred thousand people uh, in the workforce the businesses that have been supported with that, some of them are not going to be open. So effectively, you've had money from the government coffers pouring in by a JobKeeper uh, to keep the staff on the books, so to speak, in the hope that those businesses uh, can stand on their own two feet going forward. That's an Australian example of it. But I think specifically today, I think we can dig a bit deeper and go to the big daddy. Let's talk about what's been going on in America, where sure. you know, a large number of big names um, can't exist on their current cash flow. Uh, and they've gone to the bond market to raise money to fund their trading activities. Okay, now for those who don't know what the bond market is, what is it and how does it work? Okay, so the bond market, or debt market as it's called, um, is a uh, market, as its name would suggest, and you go there and say, look, you know, we need an injection of cash into our business, let's say we need $100 million. Um, you, as an investor, can give us $100 million right now, and let's say this bond expires in 10 years' time. So in 10 years' time, I'll give you your $100 million back, okay. and each and every year for the duration uh, of the investment for the full 10 years, I might pay you an interest rate, a fixed rate of 4.5% on that. So it's essentially companies going to other investors or the government saying, we need X amount of cash, mm -hmm. we'll pay it back in due time, but along the way, we'll also give you some installments of payments. That's essentially how it works. Exactly right, yeah. Look, okay. uh, bonds under normal circumstances, they, they could be an interesting form of investment. They're great for uh, retirement funds and particularly super because, um, not for self-managed super, but the way that superannuation funds tend to work. Because if you're running a large corporate super, for example, you know you've got monthly liabilities in terms of money that needs to be paid out. And by going to the bond market, that regular guaranteed cash flow that goes with it enables you to pay out those obligations as they form due. So yeah, they're, 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 it's a very, very useful tool when they're used in the right way. Personally, I'm not a bond investor. I'm looking for more growth than that. And I'm not at the stage where I'm looking for income. And even if I were, I wouldn't use bonds for it. I'd use covered calls. But, sure. uh, but that's effectively what the bond market is there to be. Now, when we talk of a zombie company, we're talking about companies who have less cash flow than what their even interest payments are on these debt. Yeah. Where's it all going wrong? How do we explain what a zombie company is specifically okay. in the bond market? So there are a large number of companies in the US. I think if you look at the Russell 3000, I think 527 of them yep. work out to be uh, in that zombie category. And effectively what that means, they've gone somewhere, borrowed money, and they're in a situation right now uh, whereby the cash flow within the business is insufficient, not to repay the debt, but to actually pay the interest accruing on the debt to pay the coupon. That's not a lot. I mean, if you can't even service the interest, let alone the whole mm. interest, so the whole payment. I mean, how do you expect to exist 
long term? Well, it, it does pose an interesting question, and hence why Zombie Company is not dead. It's kind of limping along and just about existing uh, and looking pretty grey around the process. And, and also, let's not lose sight of the fact that we're in an interest rate environment which is incredibly low. You know, if the, if the, if the coupon on the bond, the interest on the bond was 10 11%, you could understand that. But we're in an environment right now where borrowing costs have never been lower. So for a lot of these companies, their interest on those might be two, three percent, and they're struggling to be able to meet payment on that. And you must have to have basically next to nothing in terms of cash flow, even just to meet, you know, not be able to meet that obligation as such. Hmm. Why is this so bad? Well, it comes down to the scale of the borrowing on one side, and it also comes down to the reasoning for the borrowing on the other. And and bonds per se are not a bad thing when they're used in the right way at the right time they can be incredibly lucrative i know just at lunch we're having a bit of a laugh today uh, back in my time in london there was the, the, <laughs> the david bowie bomb so david bowie david bowie for those of us in the english-speaking world um great singer 67s 80s uh, and he had his entire back catalog of music uh, and wanted to generate an income from it so he, he used the royalty fee for there to be the collateral to back up the bond but to receive an upfront payment. Very smart man there. Yeah, yeah. it's incredible when it happened. I think it was about 96, 97, something 1996, like that. I believe. Uh, and so it was groundbreaking when it happened. So you know, it can come in all shapes and sizes. Sure. And oftentimes companies will go to the bond market if they have a big capital expenditure coming up because there's a big chunk of cash to go spend and do what you want to do. And as the benefit from that expenditure then kicks in, you know, let's say you were building a mine, for example, um, you know, enormous capital expenditure up front. So that bond may help facilitate the development of the mine. And then over the next 10 years, as that mine comes on tap and the revenue comes from it, you've then got the capital to pay the bond back. And then you've got the free cash flow after that. In an ideal world is exactly how bonds are used in business. That's a great situation because all you're simply doing is taking the money that you've loaned from someone else and using it to fuel your business. Mm. Now, in this situation, these companies are using it merely to survive. <laughs> you know, from our research, we looked this up this yeah. morning, $1.4 trillion in debt just from zombie companies alone. Yeah. Compare that to the GFC at just 0.6 trillion dollars. Yeah, Big so difference. It is, I mean, the GFC everyone uses as their anchor point. Remember the GFC, it was terrible. Um, you know, there, there was about 500 billion in funding. It's about 1.4 billion in zombie companies now. And, and it is just an enormous number when you think about it like that. So who's loaned the money? And a lot of this, unfortunately, uh, has been loaned um, by the Federal Reserve in the US, the central Crazy. bank, uh, as the buyer of last resort. Now, we're celebrating today, and not to timestamp this particular broadcast, for the first time in history, the Dow Jones breached 30,000 points. Dow 30,000. Huge thing. Had a massive bet with Robert, uh, not Robert Kizaki, actually, big Harry Dent on this about probably eight years ago. I reckon the Dow would hit 6,000. I said 30,000. I think where it goes first. Well, there you go. On that one tonight. Nice work. Good stuff. Um, the, 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 the reality, though, at 30,000 points, the stock market has been going gangbusters. So on the surface, looking at the big index, the, the Dow Jones, everything looks fine with the world. But when you sort of lift the bonnet and look a little bit deeper underneath, Yes, stock prices have moved up, but they've kind of moved up on something of a false premise. And I'm the last person to be a prophet of doom. But the reality is with $1.4 trillion of loans, and let's look at what some of those numbers look like. So for example, Boeing, $32 billion borrowed this year. It's a lot of money. Now, Boeing's had its own problems, the, 7, 8, uh, the, the, the 737 MAX, uh, and the rebuilding of the avionics for that, the cancelled orders, and then add to that with Corona and COVID, the slowdown in orders from airlines and, and, and cancellations of orders, and Boeing's been hit pretty hard with that. So it's needed to raise some money in order to see itself through there. If we look at something like Carnival Cruises, uh, no one's going cruising at the moment. 
least all my dad who loves cruise. I don't know why he does it. It's a bizarre experience. But You're not a fan it. of cruise lines, are you? No, I've done it once, never again. Okay. You heard it first. You heard it here. Absolutely. Don't Absolute go on one. cruises. We'll talk about their debt. What have they got? Uh, 14.2 billion they've borrowed this year. That's now, most people wouldn't even know who Carnival Cruises are. It's a huge business and it's got plenty of infrastructure, lots of boats, but 14.2 billion is, a, is an enormous number. Delta Airlines, um, the number on that, I think uh, it's about 24 billion. Makes sense again because people aren't flying. Um, and so the bailout, or the, sorry, not the bailout, it's not a bailout yet, the, the bond market, that was a slip, wasn't it? The bond <laughs> market's come to the, uh, the fore and said, here's some dough, keep yourself operating and then make good on it later on. Here's a really big one for you, and that's Macy's, the department store. So 1.2 billion, relatively small compared to the list that we've gone through already. But think about Macy's department store. It's filed for Chapter 11 protection. And, and, and rather than even Macy's, let's think about this domestically. If we look at, say, Maya, as, as a comparison to Macy's, and they are relatively comparable. Similar, similar. similar businesses. They're department stores, broad range, a lot of history, all the rest of them. Uh, and both businesses have failed to evolve into the digital era. Um, Maya, to look at the credit risk that's seen on that, and we talked about this a few podcasts ago, I'm pretty sure. QBE provide insurance to suppliers to say, look, I want to supply you with these goods, Mitch, and if you don't pay for them or something happens to your business and it falls over, at least I can insure myself, so I'm going to get my insurance payout and, and get paid for my goods and services. Sure. QBE no longer will insure suppliers providing Meyer and David Jones with their stock. Because of the high-risk nature of their business. They're worried about the longevity of those businesses, they're worried about the solvency of those businesses going forward, and they don't want to have a bar of having to have right insurance on it. And that's clear, clearly reflected in, in Macy's debt, which is just a over a billion dollars, is that right? Yeah, so Maya can get insured for that. If you take the same proxy and add it across to Macy's, and I'm sure there are similar challenges within that business too, um, if the commercial world doesn't want to backstop that business, what businesses of the Federal Reserve got of backstopping and saying, oh, there's this limitless amount of money, don't worry, we'll print some more. There's this limitless amount of capital we'll just keep pushing in just to keep you afloat and hopefully one day you can pay it back. And that, to me, is is very very concerning because well, just you know, I mean if you think about it, the Fed is lending well, creating the bond market for these companies to keep them alive mm -hmm. so that we don't enter too bad of a recession. Mm -hmm. Now, if these companies rack up so much debt, can't even make the interest payments, mm -hmm. chances are they're going to default down the track. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't that cause an economic recession anyway, by virtue of that, and it all happen at the same time? Yes. So how the hell does this go on? Um, let's just print some more money and push it down the line. And then inflation it, goes up, and, right? And everything will be fine in the world. And that's modern monetary theory. Push it down the line, print more money. And there's a flaw to that because at some point, someone has to pay it back. Sure. But I guess the, the, the big challenge is that, you know, these companies have actually recovered in some instances rather well. But is it on a false basis? And, and making sure you don't tread on that landmine is very, very important. And, it, and it's just the sheer scale of this. I mean, 1.4 trillion in that space in the US market is, is, is just an incredible number. And look, with the number, the, the companies that we've rattled off, Carnival, there's a reason why no one's cruising for it. Boeing, 7, uh, 737 Max problems, cancellation of orders. Uh, Macy's, people aren't shopping in department stores and so on. So there's a very real factor that's driving Exxon, 16 billion at Exxon as well in terms of that, you know, world's biggest oil company, um, you know, and they're struggling in this lower energy price environment. So these are all big household names that make up a large component of most portfolios. And why is it the stock market following? Mm, there's a, I think in my notes, um, Alan Greenspan's comment about the irrational exuberance in markets some many, many years ago now, and there's an element of truth about that now, with markets pushing through at record highs. 
there's that FOMO of I better get in now before it's too late. And it's not FOMO, that, that fear of missing out that's driven those particular stocks, it's driven the broad market up. Everyone needs to be and wants to be in the market. So you kind of overlook the fact that the stock's got measles, let's get it in the portfolio anyway because it's <laughs> gonna go with the rest of the market. And that can be very, very dangerous at some point because those stocks that have got a very shaky balance sheet, when the music changes and things go away from that irrational exuberance and push higher, they're the first stocks that usually falter because people realize, look, I've got, <laughs> I'm owning shares in a company that effectively is, were it not for the good charity of the Federal Reserve, would be bankrupt. It's trading insolvent. It's a, it's a zombie. It's the walking dead. Yeah, it, it's not trading insolvent. We're very clear on that because that's illegal. But it's trading in a situation where it's got negative cash flow. That's okay. that. right, just, so, just from a semantics point of view <laughs> um, and, and to make sure that we don't get sued. But you know, it's something that's very, very important to understand is that they're not there on their own dime. They've been backstopped by the buyer of last resort, Federal Reserve, incredibly low interest rates, in the hope that one day, maybe the thousand year bombs and a thousand years time you come back back. And look, some companies are gonna just see out these tough times, but some won't. And, and, and that's the real concern. And so from a portfolio construction point of view, you know, one of the things that we teach uh, is that overarching structure of including fundamentals. Now I don't mean um, in terms of um, you know, diving into the balance sheet yourself, but just looking anecdotally at the business and saying, look, is this a company that's likely to be around in the future? Does it have a more relevant part toward the future than the past? And if the answer is no, uh, then it's got no business being in your portfolio. That litmus test will go a long way, I think, to keeping you know, your average you know, Joe Bagger Donuts investor pretty safe and not in the wrong stock. Sure, so to play devil's advocate on that one, AB, if we talk about Boeing, for example, I mean, there's certainly some future relevancy in flying. People have to go places, yet it's a company in a very terrible situation at the moment. How do you start to construct a portfolio around a business that may be relevant in the future, but really is struggling right now? And this opens the door to a trader versus an investor, because sure. there's, a, there's a chalk and cheese mindset with what's going on here. As an investor, you, know, you might look at Boeing as being incredibly oversold and being very cheap and great value based on where it's been historically and where, of course, it's got the potential to move to going forward. As a trader, I'm not really that interested in that story. What I'm looking for is the pop and the move and the ability to generate some cash flow from it now. Whether that's through using options or whether it's a pop in the stock, it will depend, of course, on what strategy that you're choosing to use. But we're looking through very, very different timeline lenses here uh, between a trader and an investor. And, and long-term investing, it might be that you know, Buffett and friends all go piling into these stocks because they're trading at you know, an incredible discount and they are very cheap, but they're cheap for a reason. And that's the fact that they are unable to survive right now off their own back without the good grace and favor of a very generous ant in the form of the uh, Federal Reserve. Okay, I couldn't have said it any better myself. It's, things are valued according to what their worth is. What are some other sectors, just out of example? I mean, we talked about travel stocks like Boeing. Mm. What about healthcare in the US? I know that's a particularly interesting talking point. Yeah, look, healthcare in the US is, <laughs> healthcare in the US is a different beast. And, and, and the healthcare sector is probably the most indebted in this space. You would think it would be tourism or travel because of the restrictions there, but in fact, it actually has been healthcare. And think, well, we're in the midst of a global pandemic. How can healthcare be struggling when it's at the forefront, really? And, and, and you need to step back and actually look at the American healthcare system, which is really quite 
strange and certainly very expensive. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and a lot of the healthcare companies are, are based on elective surgery or insurance-based surgery, insurance paid surgery, whereby the cash register is ticking over based on people coming in and getting a knee replacement, a hip replacement, heart valves, all this sort of stuff, all done on insurance, tremendous revenue flow coming in the door. And obviously with the pandemic in play, people aren't having elective surgery, they're staying away from the hospital and it's literally turned off the cash flow tap for those businesses. And, and, and so yeah, medicine in America is a strange phenomenon. I've had a first-hand experience. Um, I had to get some stitches in my head. I was in Deer Valley skiing and I needed to get maybe eight or nine stitches in my head. And, and I think it was a couple of grand just for some stitches at the doctor. Um, all right, the insurance is going to pay for it and so on and so forth. But just, you know, men say, well, you, you know, you need to have a CAT scan and you need to have this. And it's like, yeah, dude, I played rugby for 20 years. I know if I've knocked myself out, I've got to cut on my head, zip it up, I'm out of here. Sure. So I know you should have a CAT scan, that's only going to be $8,000, and if you want a cup of tea, we'll have another 20 bucks on the bill to go with it. You know, it's just incredible And this was all process the way to 1945? Not quite that old. No, this was <laughs> a few years ago, but you know, it's, it's, it's just, um, it, it's extraordinary when you look at that, and, and that's exactly how that whole um, business, and it is a business, that healthcare sector is, an, is a business that's designed to extract cash Obviously, with your patients not coming in, having elective surgery, tap turned off, cash flow turned off, quick turn around to the Fed saying, hey, we need some dough if you want us to survive here. Sure. And 98 out of those 527 companies on the Russell 3000 are healthcare stocks. Goodness me, so I need 25, 20%. That's a big number. I didn't realize it was that high. Yeah, so there's a lot. So I guess, you know, the final question is, as we come to the end of the broadcast, AB, how do you trade these kind of examples? Is that towards ETFs? It's sector related? Is it more stock specific? I think it's a good thing to look at your stocks um, in terms of part of your fundamental screening. And again, this isn't about diving deep into the balance sheet of the company, but it's about making sure that they actually have some level of cash flow to support what they're up to. Um, yeah, that is absolutely mission critical. And that litmus test we talk of, you know, is the company going to be a bigger or smaller part of the future? Is it the stock that's got a tailwind or a headwind? These are some of the fundamental decisions that I think investors need to make. If it's got a headwind and there's a question mark over its involvement in the future, and look, you know, if you look at Boeing, people are not traveling right now, and it's going to be quite some time before they start traveling again. Add to that the fact that the airline industries globally have been cut to the bone and in their own right have been largely bailed out, just like Delta has, uh, either through bond markets or government support. Um, you know, the new look airline industry, when we are allowed to travel again internationally, is probably going to look quite different. And it's probably going to go from a phase of being very expansive during the good times we saw up until the start of this year to being quite defensive. So that delay in upgrading your fleet to the latest plane will back off a little bit. Also, you've got to remember, you know, part and parcel of what, um, what we look at, say, for example, um, with um, the A380 from Airbus, we've talked to Boeing, let's talk about Airbus. You know, these super aircraft, especially the A380, um, you know, didn't work in high fuel cost environments, and Boeing kind of had the wood on it there with, with the 787, it's a two-engine plane instead of a four-engine plane, sure. more economic to run around. But we're now in a, a lower fuel price environment, so some of that older fleet with less uh, environmentally efficient engines, you'll continue to use because oil is cheap enough to justify doing that. Sure. Not good news for Exxon, of course, which is why it itself has gone to the uh, to the Fed saying, "Hey, how about something for us? Share the love." So you know, it's it, it, so you know, as things turn the corner, I don't know that you're necessarily going to see a big recovery in Boeing because I think most airlines are probably going to want to hold on to the the fleet that they have. 
rather than upgrade them straight away. Uh, and so not only have you got difficult operating conditions now on the back of the 737 MAX problems, but also those reduced orders, it's hard to see how far down the line you're gonna to have to look before you start to see a, a recovery in demand for new fuel efficient uh, aircraft fleet, especially with the oil prices being where they're at. So all these things sort of link together. You sound like a true fundamentalist. Mm. This is why you're an economist by trade, obviously. Mm. Absolutely, and, and these are some of the guiding hands that we're able to provide our clients with to make sure they don't trade on the landmine and go, gee, Boeing's cheap, let's buy some. Or Carnival's cheap, let's get some. Uh, it's so, certainly quite complex. When you unpack it and listen to it in that kind of depth, I mean, that's very, very hard to come up with that fundamental story on your own. Mm. So all the more power to our clients or our listeners to actually reach out and ask us for help because I know you could certainly help us. Absolutely, it's what we do. And you know, demystifying this whole area of investments is key. You know, teaching someone to trade or invest successfully, the first thing you've got to explain to someone is you need selected ignorance. You are not going to know everything about everything. <laughs> I'll leave that to, also, no, I'm not going to answer that question. Um, you, 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 you don't need to know everything about everything, um, but you do need to know certain things. And if you bury yourself trying to learn too much, it will become overwhelming. So be very, very selective on what you want to learn, but be an expert in your niche. So learn about one or two stocks and what drives them, and then maybe a sector and what drives it, rather than overload yourself and trying to be Mr. Markets or Miss Markets and know everything about everything. Leave that to us, we've been doing it for long enough to better do it. Yeah, great advice. And I think, look, you know, coming to the end of the broadcast, AB, it's scary. You know, there's there's plenty of these walking dead zombies, you know, haunting us throughout the streets here. Mm -hmm. Who knows if they're gonna exist or if they're gonna come back to life? And I guess that's the million dollar question, right? It's or billion dollar question. It's actually the trillion dollar trillion question. Dollar $1.4 trillion dollar question. And yeah, at the end of the day, who's backstopping it? And it's the good old taxpayer via uh, uh, you know, the central bank in America. And yeah, it's great to not have a recession by having that kind of intervention. Um, however, there's always going to be a cost. It's just that that cost has been pushed down the line. And sadly, that's exactly what we're seeing here on an infinitely smaller scale. Yeah, with JobKeeper, 56 billion spent on that versus 1.4 trillion over the pond. But are we going to end up in the same place? We've stopped people being unemployed temporarily by supporting businesses that really won't be able to cut it once that lifeline or that cash flow tap is turned off. Darwin's theory of evolution was interesting. It is survival of the fittest. And at the moment, for a lot of businesses out there, it's survival of who can manage their cash flow the best and the most. And if you're in a position where you can do that, it's great guns at the moment. There is a world to go to to get federal support in the US for the, uh, for the bond markets. But at some point, that tap will be turned off. And maybe the new administration coming in in the US, maybe it doesn't do that. Absolutely. Great advice, great information. Thanks very much, AB. An absolute pleasure. Very interesting topic on that one. Cheers. My pleasure, Mitch. There you have it, guys. That is Zombie Companies. Make sure you give us a review and a rating, and we'll see you next week on the show.